All right, hello, good morning. Uh, my name is Jason. I am the church planting resident here at Restoration. I'm just gonna keep going, just plowing through. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm the church planting resident here at Restoration. It's good to be gathered this morning to worship. Uh, for the past two or three weeks, uh, we've been busy as a church. You've been seeing that. Uh, we've had our congregational meeting where we shared about our new church app, uh, our pledge campaign, uh, the church building that we are building out across the streets. Uh, we also had our youth missions trip, uh, art camp this past week, and I was also assessed by the denomination on my ability to church plant. So there's a lot that is happening in the church here at Restoration, the things that God has us doing right now, um, but also as we think about the future, just preparing for what God may be leading us to do. And so as we look at today's passage, uh, well, we're, we're going to be looking at a key moment in the life of the early church, a moment that is helpful for us, beneficial for us, as we think about life in this church. Uh, so we'll be continuing our Acts sermon series. I invite our reader up, who is Stefan, one of our members. Uh, we'll be talking about the council in Jerusalem, where a group of churches come together to solve a key issue. And we'll learn from them how they go about solving this key issue, uh, how it propels the mission of the church forward. So please give attention to God's word. Acts chapter 15, 1 through 11, and then we'll skip to 22 to 35. Uh, we'll skip this middle section. I'll just explain it, uh, reference it, summarize it when we do get there. So uh, please give attention to God's word. Pray with me. Uh, Father, I thank you uh, for your word uh, this morning. May we uh, hear from it, uh, to be convicted by it, and to know what to do. So pray for your spirit to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So longevity, this is something that we all long for, uh, especially in the business world. Companies long to stay in business. If you've ever owned a business or started a business, uh, this is a worry of yours from the very beginning. Will you and your business survive? Uh, even companies that have been around for a while also ask themselves this question at various points in their life. Uh, Apple was asking themselves this question when Steve Jobs, their founder, was going through health issues in 2009. People were asking, what's going to happen to Apple if Steve Jobs is no longer calling the shots? Uh, other companies ask themselves this question as well when it comes to their founder. The test of a company's health and longevity is when its founder leaves, right? What happens to that company after their founder leaves? Will a company stick together, stick to its core values, or will it completely fall apart? We see a similar struggle in the early church in Acts chapter 15. Uh, just some context, uh, Acts chapter 15 occurs about 25 to 50 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. So the founder of the church is no longer there. Jesus is physically not there. He has left them to build his church. And up to this point, the church has been doing well. It's been thriving, right? It's been this exponentially growing. Gentiles and Jews are coming to know Jesus. They're believing in Jesus. Leaders are being raised up. The poor and the marginalized are being cared for. Uh, amazing things are happening in the life of the church. But in Acts chapter 15, an issue arises, an issue that will test the church's ability to stay true to what God has called them to be, staying true to their founder, staying true to what Jesus has called them to be. Now, the context and issue that the early ch church faces in Acts chapter 15 uh, is told to us in verses 1 and 5. And so basically what these verses say is that there's these Jewish Christians who show up in the church in Antioch. 
Uh, and if you aren't uh, familiar with Antioch, Antioch is a city in present-day Turkey. Um, so it's quite far, actually, from Jerusalem. If you uh, Google map it, it's, if you had a car back then, it would be a 10-hour drive from Jerusalem to Antioch. So these Jewish Christians show up in the church of Antioch. They see the church exponentially growing, but they bring up one thing to the church of Antioch, and that is these Gentile Christians should be circumcised, and they should follow the law of Moses to be saved. And so what happens in the church of Antioch is a debate occurs. A debate uh, starts, and they come to no consensus. And so what they decide to do is to send a delegation back to the church in Jerusalem, a delegation of uh, Paul, Barnabas, and a few leaders so that they go to Jerusalem to discuss with the apostles and elders there. So what we see are two churches coming together to solve this key issue. And so in this chapter, we actually have a record of how they go about their debate and how they actually conclude their debate. And this is actually instructive for us as a church now, right? We, have, we are 2,000 years later, but we share in the same circumstance as the early church because the founder of the church is not here. Jesus is physically not here. So what should we do? How do we actually survive as a church? How do we navigate tough questions and issues in today's culture, especially ones that hit at the core of the gospel? So what we'll see are three ways that God has given us to actually navigate, to actually survive as a church. Uh, the first way is through the direction of the Holy Spirit. Second is the direction of the God's word. And then three, uh, three is through the direction of wisdom, to actually exercise wisdom. So uh, those are the three ways that God has given us. We'll look at those three things. Um, so the first, the Holy Spirit. The church survives at the direction of the Holy Spirit. So when the debate occurs in the church of Jerusalem, the first thing that we see is the apostle Peter speaking. And what he speaks about is actually his experience, what he has witnessed in his personal ministry. And what he has witnessed is the Holy Spirit working to bring Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. He says that in verses 8 and 9. So if you look, he says this, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter, a Jew, says he saw the Holy Spirit working amongst the Gentiles in the same way that he saw the Holy Spirit working amongst the Jews. And so Peter makes a conclusion. He says, if the Holy Spirit makes no requirement upon the Gentiles except faith in Jesus, then we should, whatever we decide, should follow suit. It should follow that example. And this is a big deal, right? If you know Peter, only five chapters earlier, he struggled to eat unclean food. He struggled to uh, acknowledge the Gentile way of life. And so this is a big deal for Peter. He makes this observation, and he says, we should actually make a decision that follows what the Spirit says rather than my own preferences. And this matters for us as a church, right? As we think about life in this church, we have to uh, make decisions. We have a decision-making process, and we can follow the Holy Spirit in doing these things. Uh, we have ministry programs. We have ministry events that we have to decide, right? We have community groups. How should we do our community groups, right? Or where should we actually give our money? Should we actually give money to NJ, right? <laughs> should we actually support him in his ministry? We actually have to follow the spirits in discerning those things. We have all these decisions to make as a church. And what Peter says is that the Holy Spirit helps us in our decision-making process as we think about where is the Spirit bearing fruit? That in our decision has to follow suit. 
sometimes we can hold on to certain things uh, too tightly, things that we like within church. Uh, it could be a range of things, but if these things aren't bearing the fruit of salvation, aren't bringing people to faith, aren't bringing people up in the faith, then what Peter says here is that we should actually maybe rethink those things. If maybe it is not the, what the Spirit is leading us to do. And now this is, you know, comes with a caveat. That doesn't mean we should do ministry uh, that only bears fruit, right? Because there's many people throughout the, uh, the Bible to where they're called to do things where it's hard to see fruit. But what we see here is Peter is dying to self. He is not choosing his preference. All these Jewish Christians prefer these Gentile Christians to be circumcised, to follow the law of Moses. But the Spirit is showing them a different way, a way that actually bears the fruit of salvation. And Peter acknowledges that. If you look at verse 10, Peter says that gaining salvation through the law of Moses didn't actually work for the Jews. So why should we actually try to have that expectation upon Gentiles? So as Christians, we can get caught up too easily into our idea of the Christian life, right? We have these preferences or maybe theological traditions that we hold tightly to. But the thing is, we can miss the forest for the trees. And the Spirit doesn't do that. This, and we can limit the Spirit's work in the ways that we make decisions as a church. One way that God has been teaching me not to do this has actually been through fundraising. Uh, in the world of fundraising, I've been fundraising for eight years now. I've been doing ministry for eight years. Um, and in fundraising, you actually uh, can't be picky. You know, wherever God provides is wherever God provides. But the thing is, I might have preferences, right? I want to go to my friends. I want to go to these churches that I know have money. Um, I'm choosing these places to actually raise funds. But with fundraising, God has taught me that I don't actually get to choose. I have to follow the Spirit in where to find where I'm being provided for in my ministry. One way that I've been uh, learning that is through uh, going actually to churches that I wouldn't uh, realize or find myself going to. Uh, I remember this struggling or dying church, and this might be encouraging for some of you who uh, come from churches that are no longer here. Uh, and, and you might be wondering how the Spirit was in those places. And so I remember a time where I went to uh, a struggling church, a dying church, and I gave a fundraising uh, presentation of my ministry. And one of the last acts as a church was that they did an offering to give towards my ministry. So an amazing thing, I wouldn't have found myself in this place if I wasn't open to what the Spirit was doing. Another uh, example is I I met a woman randomly through a mutual connection, an elderly woman, and she has been supporting me for the past eight years. Unfortunately, she passed away this past year, but she is one of my best ever supporters, not just because she gave the most amount of money, but because she would actually call me two to three times a year to see how I was doing, to pray for me. And she actually had a, a folder of all my newsletters. And it was a lot of newsletters because back in the day, I used to do monthly newsletters. Now I don't do that anymore. I'm too busy. Um, <laughs> I do quarterly. And it was amazing because what if I chose to do my ministry in the way that I preferred? And that's what we see here with, uh, with Peter. The Jewish Christians, yes, had a preference. The Christian life should be done in this way. And it's scary as a church, right? Because the Spirit is leading them in a direction that is uncharted. The God's people have never looked like this before. And yet the Spirit is saying, go in this direction. So for us as a church, let's not marry ourselves to things that we prefer, things that uh, we want to do or we want to hold on to tightly. 
let's actually listen to what the Spirit is doing, and we can see that through the fruit that is being born through his work. So the first thing is the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's how we survive as a church. We follow the Holy Spirit. Secondly is through the direction of his word. So not only does the Holy Spirit guide us in knowing what to do, uh, but also God's word as well. And we see that in uh, verses 12 through 21. So after Peter and Paul and Barnabas share their testimonies of how the Spirit's been working amongst the Gentiles, uh, James, uh, the brother of Jesus, steps up. And what he does is he actually shares his own argument, and he shares a different argument. He says that the word of God actually supports, it actually confirms and agrees with the testimonies of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. And what he does is he actually quotes the prophet Amos. Uh, the promise, prophet Amos says that the Gentiles will be brought into the family by faith, that God's name will actually be placed upon the Gentiles just as they are the Jews. And not only does James say, uh, uh, prophet Amos says this, but there are actually other places in the Old Testament. He says prophets in the plural. It's not just one prophet, but many prophets. All throughout the Old Testament, you can see God working or promising from the very beginning to bring the Gentiles into faith. And so what we see is that the experience of these church leaders is confirmed by truth. God's word is truth. The truth guides them under, in understanding what is going on around them in the church and actually to know what to do in response. And that should be the expectation with Scripture. The Word of God tells us the truth. It tells us how God made the world, how uh, we are made to live. And that should be the expectation. We can actually rely on Scripture to actually know uh, what is going on around us. And that goes for Christians and non-Christians. I had an experience like this uh, recently. I was with a family member. Uh, we were having a discussion where he was asking me for advice. Um, he, uh, he was talking about the situation that he was in, and by this point, he's already talked to many of his family members uh, and many of uh, family uh, friends. I'm sorry, many of his friends. And so, uh, a lot of his friends have shared the same advice: if you do this, this will actually help. If you do that, that's actually not going to really help you. Um, that's going to make your situation worse. And I was actually saying some of the same things. Uh, and he was acknowledging that, yes, I should do that instead of this. Um, but what was interesting was that he actually made an observation. Why do I keep doing what I'm not supposed to do? Why am I making things worse for myself? Even though my friends say I should do this and not do that, and even I acknowledge that myself, why do I keep making things worse for myself? And as I was thinking about that question, it actually occurred to me. The Bible actually has an explanation for that. It actually has an answer for that. And so that's what I told my family member. You know, the Bible actually has an explanation for that. You actually do those things because that's what your heart loves. You might rationalize with your mind that it's not good for you to do these things, but if your heart loves it, it's going to keep going after those things. If you love money, it doesn't matter how many consequences you occur incur, you're going to go after money. And what the Bible says is if you actually want a new heart, you, uh, if you actually want to change your behavior, you're going to actually have to have a new heart. And in this situation, as we were talking, and I just shared that, we were in the car and I was driving. And so I wasn't really looking at my, uh, my family member, and there's a time of silence. And I'm like, oh, what's, <laughs> what's going on? And so I, I glance over at my family member, and I just realize there's an expression on his face. 
a expression of surprise, but also just realization. Oh, the Bible just explained my experience, just told me what was going on within me. And that is the experience that we should expect with the Bible, with God's word. God's word is truth. It explains things. God's word is useful and is able to be useful because it is truth. And what we see here in Acts chapter 15 is that they actually go in into this debate with that understanding. The church relies on the word of God to discern what to do. The Bible is not a tool on equal status with other tools. Uh, The Bible is central, right? And they use it. If we're to know God and his will for us as a church, we must use his word. It is a non-negotiable. And God has given us his word for that very purpose, to discern what to do in response to our situations. And James knows that, and that's why he uses scripture to, as an argument for what to do. So we live in a time where there's lots of issues, uh, you know, we, things that the church is encountering that the early church did not, um, things that are political, economic, social issues. Um, and the Bible has actually answers. We can rely on the Bible, God's word, to actually discern how to go about these issues and concerns. And so that is the second way, the second way uh, that we can survive as a church, at the direction of God's word. The third way uh, that we survive is through the exercising of wisdom. So uh, not only do we survive through the direction of the Holy Spirit, but and also the direction of the God's word, but we actually have to exercise wisdom as a church. And so we see that in the last section, verses 22 through 35. There is wisdom littered throughout this section. And we see that in the actions that the leaders of both churches agree upon and also in how they implement these decisions. Um, So when these leaders come together, they do this debate, it became clear to them, right, they make the wise decision to follow the Holy Spirit, to follow God's word. Uh, It's clear that only faith in Jesus is the way to be saved. And so what they end up deciding is that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. That is the wise decision. They should follow that. But they also do use wisdom in implementing that decision. What else do they actually decide? They decide on four other things that the Gentile Christians should do. And if you actually look at these four things, what you'll realize is that these are things that are more out of respect, out of more uh, love for their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. These are things that you could say are compromise, a decision to uh, unify and to love one another in the church. How do Gentiles and Jewish Christians live in fellowship with one another? Yes, the core belief is that you are saved by faith alone, but how do you actually live with one another? You have preferences, you have opinions, you have a way of life, of cultural background. How do you actually live in fellowship with one another? And these church leaders decide, Gentile Christians, these are the four things that you must do, and you actually do well. We will survive and we will flourish together as a church by doing these four things. You also see wisdom in how they go about making their decision. If you see, they actually have organized debate, right? There is orderly debate. There are people who speak up, and they have their time to speak. You also see representatives from both churches. It's not just the church in Jerusalem that is deciding things, but it's also the representatives and elders from the church of Antioch coming together to make a decision together. And also when they share that decision with the church of Antioch, It's not just a fractured way of sharing, but they actually share it together. 
They share it collectively. When they go to the Church of Antioch, they send representatives from the Church of Jerusalem to share it together with Paul and Barnabas. So there's a lot of wisdom littered throughout this passage. Uh, as a church, they use wisdom to know what to do. Yes, we are all saved by faith. We are one family, right? But that doesn't mean that we have things that could fracture us. We have our opinions. We have our preferences. So how do we go about navigating those issues when we have these core beliefs? A good example of that is General Assembly. Uh, if you aren't familiar with General Assembly, that is an uh, annual meeting uh, within our denomination uh, where all the elders in our denomination meet together to discuss key issues. Um, some issues can be more minor, uh, but some can be very major, things that take long or contentious debates. Um, and sometimes uh, it can be pretty dry uh, at times, but there is wisdom littered throughout General Assembly. Uh, from what I observe, there is the debates that are orderly. People are given a certain amount of time to speak, uh, and we are uh, uh, supposed to hear what they say. There's also representatives from other churches all throughout the denomination, right? We have Dan and John, who are our representatives at this past GA, to represent our interests as a church. And when decisions are made as a church, they are accepted as a whole. They are voted upon. So there's a lot of ways to run a denomination. There's not uh, one way. Um, but what we see in this passage is that in whatever way we run a denomination, run a church, it has to be through wisdom. And we strive for that here at Restoration. You saw that maybe if you were at the congregational meeting. Uh, you saw that in the decisions that we make as a church. Uh, we have, a, you know, deciding to make a, a decision to lease a new building, uh, have a pledge campaign. These are big decisions as a church, uh, decisions that take wisdom. And so hopefully we as a church are engaging uh, in the act of wisdom to rely on the Holy Spirit, to use the God's word as we do these things. And we are all called to follow the example of Acts chapter 15. And we truly can. Uh, if you actually look at this chapter, what I love about this chapter is that there's no miracle from God. There is no voice from heaven. Um, there is no like miraculous like appearing of Jesus like this is what you should do, right? But what we see here is none of those things. What we see here is like common sense process. We see wisdom exercise. We see regular people coming together to make a decision as a church. They look out to see what the Holy Spirit is doing around them. They see uh, what the word of God says, and then they come together to deliberate, to debate, to figure out what to do next. So we have these three things, three things that God has given us to survive, to know what to do as we direct our church uh, as restoration, we should use these things, right? We should use these avenues to know what to do today and into the future. But here's the good news of the gospel as I close. We don't have to do these things perfectly. We aren't a perfect church, and that's a good news, right? You know, for any company, when the founder leaves, uh, it is upon the burden of the next CEO, the burden of all the employees, to keep the company together, to keep the company afloat, to stick to its core values, to actually survive and thrive into the future. And for the church, uh, we don't ever actually have to have that worry because our founder didn't stay dead. The founder didn't stay dead. Jesus is alive, he is eternal, and that is the good news of the gospel. God has given us ways to survive as a church as we've just looked in our passage this morning. 
but we ultimately survive because Jesus is alive. If you look at just the past 2,000 years of church history, uh, this in Acts chapter 15, it was one of the beginning of many issues, right? This is the first big issue in the church, but we're going to encounter many more issues in the next 2,000 years, and yet Jesus, uh, the church is still here. And I think that's evidence of how great Jesus is. Jesus is our founder. He is alive. He is not dead. And so as a church, we have no need to worry. Just consider Jesus. We, have, we can have faith in Jesus. He saves us through grace alone. And we can have a confidence that he is our cornerstone because he is not dead. So pray with me. Father God, uh, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift of Jesus, um, how we uh, as a church can have confidence in Jesus, um, that he is not dead, he is alive, that we can have confidence that um, you will never forsake us, and that it's not all upon us uh, to be perfect Christians, um, but we can rely on the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.